Uh, well, welcome. Um, we're, we've never done this before, as we said earlier, and so it's really it's exciting to see you guys uh, kind of live and in person, uh, even though it's remote, and uh, we're continuing in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9. Hopefully you found that in your Bible or in the, the, the digital bulletin, um, and I, I don't know, when I first read chapter 9, I just thought, I don't even know if there's a sermon in this chapter. Uh, it's, it's kind of a grab bag of a lot of different thoughts. Some of them seem inconsistent and uh, just it's kind of a crazy chapter. But but as I kind of dove into studying it and reflecting on it, found out, oh, actually, the heart of the whole message of the book is in here. Um, and so I'm excited to, to be able to, to preach this to you uh, today. Uh, Ecclesiastes is kind of a tale of uh, two worldviews. And so one is the worldview of uh, under the sun, um, this idea that uh, all there is is what you can see with your eyes. And th there's implications to each of these worldviews. And so the implication of the under the sun worldview uh, is that life is futile. It is void of meaning. It is trying to find meaning in life under the sun is like grasping a vapor, um, which is this word hevel that uh, he uses over and over and over again, this idea uh, of grasping for this meaninglessness of, of life. Uh, but then there's worldview number two, and that is uh, life under heaven, that uh, there is a sovereign good God and that everything that is good in this life can be received as a gift from a good God. And everything that's hard in this life can be entrusted, uh, can, can be entrusted to him as you're uh, going through uh, this hard time. And so uh, it, it gives us these kind of dueling worldviews, and it's not done in a nice, neat little package. It's not like bullet points and a, a nice logo, marketing slogan, and spokesperson. Um, it's, it's given in this uh, angst over trying to figure out, okay, if there's a sovereign good God, then how is it that uh, there can be so much hevel uh, in, this, in this life? Uh, and so the, these, these tensions, they are very troubling to uh, the writer of, of Ecclesiastes. And so you can feel that tension in, in places like from last week, Ecclesiastes 8.14. It says, there's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And so you, you see these statements where he's just like, this doesn't make sense. How could righteous people be punished and, and wicked people be rewarded, especially in light of uh, the fact that there's a sovereign good God. And so over and over and over, he's experiencing these tensions and he's declaring them hevel. He's declaring them uh, vanity. Then a couple of verses later, he'll say things like this, Ecclesiastes 8.17 then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And so while he wrestles with these tensions, he oftentimes comes to the conclusion, uh, we're just not going to figure it out. We're just not going to understand the mystery uh, of life and especially uh, the, the things about life that seem so futile. And honestly, chapter eight feels like the end of the book. That'd be a great ending, right? He, he like displays the tensions and says, we can't figure it out. And then he should just like send us off sermon over, but he doesn't. Um, 
in chapter nine, he goes right back at it, trying to figure out why is life so experiences such futility, uh, which is, is kind of the point, right? Like it's futile, but as human beings, intuitively, we just can't settle for that. Like we, we, we want to somehow figure out how is it that there is some meaning in this life? And uh, so here he dives back into the futility of trying to figure out why life is experienced uh, as futile. Um, and so he's going to take another pass at trying to figure this thing out in chapter nine. And so the outline today, and this is, this is inside the digital bulletin, if, uh, if that will help you track, is that God's in charge. So that's going to come from the very first verse there, uh, that life and especially death is not fair. That's the next few verses. That life and death is fair. And then that we should live life to the fullest. And so those are sort of the, the movements in this, in this passage. So the first is that God's in charge. Uh, verse one says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. All right. So he's back diving into, I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm going to really work hard at this. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And so this is definitely describing world worldview number two, that there's a God. And he says that, that all of life is in the hand of God. Uh, now, what hands do is hands manipulate. Right? This is actually where we get the word manipulate. The, the, the Latin word uh, manus means hand. And that's where we get manipulate. You may, if you know some Spanish, you know that manos are, are hands. Uh, school teachers use manipulatives uh, to teach kids math. Uh, we can take our hands and in one hand have a screwdriver, in the other hand have a screw, and we can uh, tighten up uh, the hinges in the door, right? My feet can't do that. My hands can do that, but my feet might squash a bug, but, but my, my feet cannot manipulate tools in such a way that I can fix the hinges in my door. And so when he says that, that life is in the hands of God, He's saying that that that, lot, that God is superintending. He's manipulating. He is 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 very intimately involved in life under the sun. Now the question is: Is that good news? <laughs> I mean, is that good? Is that bad? I mean, it, it could be either, right? And and it depends on what your expectations are about life. And uh, he lets us know that he's not going to make us any empty promises. Uh, he says, "Will you experience love or hate in the future?" You don't know. You don't know. But what you do know is that God is superintending all things. Now, this is in the face of every prosperity preacher. Uh, the idea that if I do good things, good things will happen to me. Uh, now, usually the official prosperity message is if you give a generous one-time gift to my ministry, then God will give it back to you a hundredfold. Uh, and we look at that and we say, oh, that's so, that's so silly. We, we're, we're more sophisticated than that. Our theology is more uh, on par than, than that. But we shouldn't be so hard on those uh, seeking health and wealth. Um, we do the same thing, right? We pray a lot for something and we expect that we're going to get that thing just exactly as we want it. We tie it to the church and we expect we're never going to struggle uh, financially. We refrain from sex before marriage, and we expect God to give us the husband or wife of our dreams. We serve in the church, and we expect that we'll be appreciated both by God 
and by our fellow church members. We do the right thing, and then God will bless us. And again, you might say, no, I'm not like that. I, 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 my theology is better than that. My understanding of how things work is better than that. But, but think about us, the way we react when things don't work out the way that we expected them to. We pray a lot and God doesn't give us what we prayed for, or he gives us something we don't want, right? What happens? We get mad. We get mad. We, we refrain from sex before marriage, and then we remain single, right? Like, we, we, we get upset about that. We serve in the church and we experience conflict with our fellow church members. Um, uh, I was talking to a, a mom in one of our uh, family groups the other day, and uh, she was talking about how she and her children have been praying for the coronavirus to go away, right? And, and they've been doing this for days and months. And the, the, the kid finally asked, like, why hasn't God done this? We've been asking every night, mom, like, what's the deal, right? And, and it's, so it's a pretty natural response uh, as human beings to, 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 to be asking, uh, why, why aren't things going the way I want them to go, the way that I expect them uh, to go, if there's a sovereign good God? And uh, Ecclesiastes just kind of takes a sledgehammer out and just crushes that unrealistic expectation. And he doesn't do it once. He does it over and over and over and over again. And we need that because we're all prosperity preachers, whether we are willing to admit that or not. Every time we ask, why are things so good? Thinking I must have done something good to deserve this. Or why are things so bad? Thinking I must have done something bad to deserve this. We, we are buying into that prosperity kind of, of gospel. Now, again, there's something in us is like, well, isn't there some truth, right? To I do good things, good things happen to me. And, and, and yes, that's, that's called the book of Proverbs, right? I mean, there, there are truisms regarding living life well in such a way that good things happen and, 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 and you know, there's fruit from, from wise uh, living. But as always, Ecclesiastes is reminding us that there's limits. There's, there's, there's extreme limits uh, to that kind of, of prosperity thinking. And this brings us to the second point here that life is not fair. Life is not fair. Uh, look at verse two. He says, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns the oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And so he, he's, this is his life, life's not fair speech, right? That this horrible event known as death is happening to every human under the sun, whether you're good or evil. Uh, we, we might hear that and say, well, you know, from an from a Old Testament Jewish perspective, say, well, what about if you're Jewish? He says, no, if you're clean or unclean, that's what that language means. If you're Jewish or not Jewish. Uh, you, the, the Jew might push back and say, well, what, maybe the Jew that, that, that is experiencing this isn't being as religious as they should be. He said, no, the sacrificer and the non-sacrificer, right? That's religious language. The one who takes an oath and the one who does not take an oath, that's also religious language. He's like, your religion doesn't, doesn't seem to, to, to make any difference in terms of uh, those that, that die and those that don't die. Uh, we might say, well, maybe you're not you know, it's not strong enough. You're, you're weak. You're, you're not as gifted. You don't work hard enough. I mean, he even addresses that later in the chapter in verse 11, where he says, again, I saw that under the sun, 
the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And so again, he, he's just uh, doubling down on this uh, sort of injustice of death happening to everyone, regardless of whether they're good or bad, religious or not religious, clean or unclean, uh, whether they work really hard, whether they're really smart, uh, that, that time and chance and eventually death uh, catch up to all of them. And he's like, this isn't fair. This is not fair. But then on the other hand, it is fair. And this is where we get to the third point. Uh, now, again, I, I read this verse three. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. So that's sort of the, it's not fair. But then look what the second half of verse three, he says, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And so in that second part, he's saying, actually, life and eventually death is fair. And it's fair because uh, the hearts of human beings are full of evil and madness. It's almost like you're just kind of seeing a stream of consciousness where he's like, man, people are good and it's not fair. And then he's like, uh, actually, people are not good. <laughs> people are evil and it is fair. And he said similar things to this before. If you remember back in chapter seven, and, and I keep going back to this verse because I think it's a key verse in Ecclesiastes uh, seven, verse 29. He, he says, see this alone I found that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. Same kind of idea that there's a sense in which human beings are good. There's a sense in which human beings are evil. And any honest reflection on humanity is going to—it's going to bring this reflection—is that humans are both ex exemplifying dignity and depravity, right? They're exemplifying dignity and depravity. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're religious or not, you—you are displaying dignity and depravity. And this is a very standard kind of Judeo-Christian understanding of human beings: that all human beings have dignity. Uh, by the fact that they are created in the image of God. They are image bearers of, of the, the holy, perfect uh, God. When they love, when they create, when they think, when they exercise their will for good, when they sacrifice for others, there's a great dignity that we see in human beings. But then we also see a depravity. Uh, all human beings are capable of, of acting in ways that are less than human. Uh, that are completely inconsistent with their maker. Uh, they can hate, they can destroy, uh, they can refuse to think, they can use their wills for bad, they can serve their own self-interest uh, to the exploitation of the interests of others. We're both, right? We're both. We're marred image bearers. Uh, we're still image bearers, um, but we're marred, we're broken, and, but even a broken mirror will resemble, at least at some level, uh, the original image. So what are we to do? What are the implications of that kind of a worldview, right? There's a, there's a God who is, is sovereign over all things, that there's a, a dignity and a depravity about human beings. Um, what do we do with that? And this is where we get to the fourth point. What you do with that is you live life to the fullest. You live life to the fullest. 
And this is this we see this in verses four through ten. Verse four, he says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now here he says, he's letting us know life is a gift and it's worth living. Even if all you believe is that there's life under the sun. Notice that in those verses I just read, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of God. And yet he says, even if there's no understanding of God, that life is still worth living. And I think this is an important moment here in Ecclesiastes, because sometimes you wonder if he thinks that. Sometimes you, it's so depressing what he's saying. You, you expect him to say, now, just jump off a cliff because it's not worth it. But here he's letting us know, no, it is worth it. Being alive is better than being dead. He's, he's no you know, nihilist here. He, he's a realist. But in his realism, what he declares is it is better to be alive than dead. And almost all human beings believe this. Almost all human beings believe it is better to be alive than dead. Now think about this. The, the suicide rate in, in the U.S. is 13 suicides per 100,000 people, right? And so that means 99.99% of people in the U.S. believe it is better to be alive than dead. That may be the only thing that 99.99% of people in the U.S. agree on, is that it is better to be alive than dead. Um, and so there, there's, there's just something in us as human beings that, that no matter how bad it is, that it, it is better to be alive than dead. And Solomon says it's even better to be alive than to be a dead famous person. That's what he means when he says it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Even if you were an amazing person, you, you, you were, you know, Churchill, you, 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 know, you, you, you were some famous a uh, person in history, but you're dead. He's like, you'd be better off being a dog. And in, in the ancient world, dogs were not looked highly upon, right? So that's, that's not a compliment, <laughs> but he's saying it's better to be alive. It's better to be alive than to be dead. And why is that? Well, he says, because you have a share in the stewardship of human life. And again, he's just speaking about life under the sun. He's not even moved to, to life under heaven here. Uh, he's saying you, you're like a steward of whatever portion of life under the sun that you have been given. You're a participant in the, in the common grace, whether you're a believer in God or not. And, and it, so it's worth it. It's worth it to live. It's worth it to receive that gift uh, and to live it uh, to the fullest. But there's more. <laughs> there's more than, than just life under the sun. Even though that is worth living, um, there's more to it. And this is where he gets to verse seven. And this is really the heart of the book. Uh, verse seven says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion life in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun 
whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So he moves, again, we see this pattern all the time. He moves from life under the sun to life under heaven. And he makes the, the fifth of what's sometimes called the carpe diem uh, declarations in Ecclesiastes. These sort of seize the day, uh, enjoy the good gifts that God has given you um, passages. And so he's like, eat, drink, get dressed up in some nice clothes, uh, use, you know, fix your hair, get some hair product, fix your hair with, with oil uh, and celebrate. And he seems to be describing a wedding Right, because he's also mentioning husband and wife in the midst of this celebration with dressed up, you know, clothing, and and food and drink, and he he's this is always the go-to, not always, but oftentimes the go-to for the Bible to 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 point to a taste of life to come in, in eternity, and that is a wedding feast, and there's intimacy, and there's food, and there's beauty, uh, and there's joy, and so he points to that as something that you should receive from the hand of a good God. And he is like saying, go hard at this. He's like, go, <laughs> go now. Like there's urgency uh, to this. And, and saying things like, you know, put whatever you put your hand to, go with all your might, right? There's, there's, a, there's a strength that you have. Put that full strength to whatever you're doing, whether it's work or play or service or relationships, carpe diem, right? Like seize the day, get after it. Um, that, that this is something that God has given you, he's entrusted it to you, and, and now you, you should, should go for it. And, um, and he uses this hand uh, uh, illustration, right? Because That we are in the hand of God, and now he's saying, put your hand to whatever it is that God has given to you. And so it is because we are in the hand of God that even though sometimes we may feel like life is heavy, we can still put our hand to whatever it is that God has entrusted to us and do that uh, to the full. And there's a great amount of urgency here for us to do that. And in part because he's juxtaposing this with the idea that we have no control over uh, time and chance and death. And so he's like, what are you waiting on? Like, like, like you have no control over time, chance, and death. You need to get going. <laughs> you need to go and live life and live life to the full. And whatever it is you're putting your hand to, you need to do that to the fullest. Now, again, he he is not blowing smoke. This is not like a Pinterest quote. Uh, you know, while he's saying go and 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 you know engage with everything you've got, he's also weaving in there because in your life you're going to have toil, because in your life uh, there there is going to be this experience of futility, and so he's he's not this is not just some sort of a, a motivational speaker kind of a moment here. He's a re, still a realist, but he's saying because you are in the hand of a sovereign good God, you now need to put your hand. Uh, fully to whatever it is that God has entrusted to you. Um, and how good is this God? I mean, again, look at the last part of verse seven. He says, for God has already approved what you do. Right? And so he, he lets us know about the grace of God, the, the acceptance by God, by grace that's being given to us 
uh, in his sovereign hand. And because of that, we can uh, engage with whatever we've been given uh, by him. Um, again, this is the heart of the, of the book. I'm, re I'm really, I'm, I feel pretty strongly about that. Uh, one commentator entitled his commentary, commentary on Ecclesiastes as the, the table in the mist. Um, and so this is what's being described here is, is this table of food and fellowship with God and with others. And it's in the mist. It's in the hevel. Um, and, and this is the life that we, as those who uh, believe in worldview number two, that life is under heaven, this is the kind of life that we live. We live at the table in the hevel, the, the table in the mist. And because of that, we, we can receive this command to go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, knowing that God has approved uh, what, what, what we are uh, doing. And th this is really the gospel according to Ecclesiastes, right? This is, this is where we really are getting at uh, the heart of the book, that on one hand, human beings are full of evil. And on the other hand, God is being gracious to them right? That, those are the two threads. You see that throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's interesting to me that the Jews uh, would always read Ecclesiastes during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is, is the remembering of the 40 years of wandering around in the desert. And so on one hand, the Feast of Tabernacles is a remembrance of their sin, that they sinned against God, and then they were disciplined and had to wander around in the desert. On the other hand, it's a remembrance of God's grace. Because he fed them, he clothed them, uh, he, he protected them militarily, their clothes didn't wear out. Just this tremendous outpouring of grace in the midst of the, the, the desert wanderings. And this is, this is what the message of Ecclesiastes is. That on one hand, we're, we're full of evil. On the other hand, God is giving us grace and mercy. Uh, Jesus was... Uh, one of his favorite ways of talking about the kingdom of God was talking about a banquet. And one of uh, those parables that he told was in Luke 14. And he speaks of uh, the, the kingdom of God as a king giving a great banquet. And the, the king has done everything to prepare the menu planning, the shopping, uh, the cooking, the table setting. This, this is not a potluck, right? Like everything's done. And uh, it's described in Luke 14, 17, says that at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, come for everything is now ready. And so the invites go out and it goes out to lots of reputable people and the reputable people all say no. And they have good reasons. They're very nice about it. One says, I've got some important business things to do. Another person's like, well, I just got married and I just can't come. And uh, so the servants come back, they report to the king and uh, this is what, the, what happens. Uh, verse 21 of Luke 14 says, The servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. 
it's more than a clever story by Jesus. It's it's the gospel. I mean, he is telling the gospel. These two threads uh, that you see running throughout Old and New Testament. That on one hand, humans uh, are evil. They are worthy of judgment. They are worthy of death. On the other hand, God in His grace and His mercy is inviting them uh, to a joy-filled fellowship with Him for eternity. And the way that those both can be true is, is what happens at the cross of Christ. Because at the cross of Christ, uh, sin is being judged. The, the, the holy judge is, is, is taking care of the, the sin that's been committed by evil human beings. But also he is giving grace at the cross to guilty sinners uh, like you and me. And, and that grace is received by faith. We, 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 when we believe this, both the bad news that human beings uh, are evil, worthy of judgment, and that uh, God in his mercy has made a way for us to be forgiven and brought to the table of, of grace. And we bring nothing. This is not a potluck, right? Everything has been prepared. And, and now the invite has been brought before us. And we are invited to pull up to the table of grace. And that grace is so comprehensive that it sustains us for an eternity. <laughs> this is not just uh, eat and drink and, and enjoy God now as we're living, but in the life to come. Uh, something that Solomon didn't understand yet. I mean, his comments about Sheol, uh, that you're going to go to Sheol and you're never going to, uh, you know, never going to have any more wisdom or knowledge. Uh, what he didn't know was the rest of the story, that one greater than Solomon uh, the Christ would die, yes, and go to Sheol, but would then three days later would return resurrected and would resurrect as one who is victorious over sin and all of its effects, including death. And that can be your gift if you receive it, right? Like, like if you receive the invite to the table of grace, it's yours. Uh, and if you, you try to bring something of your own to the banquet to earn your way into the invite. It actually sabotages your faith. You can't bring anything. You, you've got to come with an open hand receiving the grace that's being provided at God's table, Re admitting that you've been enamored with the things under the sun. You've treated those things as ultimate, but now realize that those things are not ultimate and that what is ultimate is a relationship with the one uh, true God and so if you've not received that invite uh, from uh, God through Christ, we, we would encourage you to do that today by faith, uh, to reach out to him. And, and this is something that it's piquing your interest, but you're like, I'm not quite sure what you're saying. Uh, I'd like to talk more. Please reach out to me. Please reach out to our church office. We'd love to continue to have a conversation about that. And that's actually something that's been happening the last few weeks as folks have been saying, I want to know more. I want to talk more about what this means uh, to receive uh, the grace that's provided for me uh, at the cross. If you have received that gracious invitation, then the exhortation to you is to live life to the full, right? That's, that's the application of, of, this, uh, of this chapter, to continually feast on gospel grace, to continually pull up to the table, not to, not to be saved once, once for all for your sin. That happens once you've placed faith in Christ, uh, but to continue to be sustained by this grace 
as you work and play and love and create and serve. Uh, th this grace is abundant. It, it is infinite. And we've, we've been uh, exhorted in this passage to pull up to that uh, table of grace. This is Christ's heart toward you at all times, not just when you're initially saved and became a Christian, but, but ongoing to, to continue to pull up to that, uh, to that table. Uh, Jesus also models for us this kind of living, of living to the full. Uh, David Gibson, he comments in his book on Ecclesiastes uh, about this. He says, the sheer number of times Jesus and food are mentioned in the Gospels is staggering. The reason is that he is the ultimate preacher, the true wise man. He is the embodiment and the fulfillment of the vision of life that the preacher in Ecclesiastes has been holding out to us. God's good world is there to be enjoyed in relationship with others, and we eat and drink together now in anticipation of our feasting together then. Every meal is a foretaste, an appetizer for the banquet to come. And so these good things in life are not ultimate things, but they are arrows pointing toward the one who is ultimate, who has given us these good things. And so every time we're pulling up to a table, so this, this week's Thanksgiving, okay? This is a real opportunity for you to practice this, to pull up to the table in the mist, right? Because you may have had a, a week or a month or a year of hevel, <laughs> and, and yet you know that there's more to this life than the hevel that you experience. And you can pull up to a table in the midst. Uh, usually at this time in in-person services, we're pulling up to that table of grace, the bread and the cup, being reminded of the table in the midst, the table in the heaven. We go again and again and again and again to remind ourselves and, and to remind ourselves that it is what that table represents that gives us unconditional acceptance from God. And because of that, we can eat and drink, live and love, serve, work, do all of those things with great joy, knowing that these good things are arrows to the one who is ultimate and the one who has given us these good things. Let me pray for us. God, we, we come to you admitting that the hevel of this life, uh, the vanity, um, it can it can be so weighty. It, it, it can be so discouraging. Um, and and as we live in that day in and day out, Lord, we we pray that as your uh, children, that we could carve out a table in the mist, and that we would do that as a church, as we come back to the gospel again and again and again and again. That we would do that as 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 Christians faithfully walking with you day in and day out as we pull up to the table of grace and are reminded of the good God in whose hand that we live and that because of that grace, we could then put our hands to whatever it is that you've placed in our stewardship on this earth and we could go for it. We could do it with all of our strength and do so for your glory and for the good of those that we love and serve. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.